another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. So it's Friday as I'm recording this entry in the podcast, August the 7th, intending to post tomorrow, August the 8th, Saturday. In fact, it's my intention to post every Saturday or every other Saturday as my subjects come up and interviewees become available. I want to be regular in the presentation of these podcasts so that hopefully those of you who are listening will know they're coming and will look forward to them and find them every week or every other week on a Saturday around the same time, probably the evenings. Now, if you're hearing a little bit of waterfall in the background, that's deliberate. I need the sense of calm that's provided by my little musical interludes behind the scenes. This having been, even though I never went anywhere today, not a great day. And the subject that I'm going to be talking about is a very holy one. So there's a little bit of inconsistency in my doing this today. I uh, bought a portable washing machine, a little thing, and I spent most of the morning and part of the afternoon trying to get the thing to work. And um, I hesitate to say that I really will need to go to confession tomorrow because some of the words I used in reference to the washing machine were not Lord approved. So that's sort of the backdrop of today's presentation, which is going to be a continuation of a discussion of my sense of the Eucharist as a practicing Catholic. And it's something that Candace Azara and I discussed and her creative partner, Michael Conley, and I discussed uh, in the last two podcasts. But I think it's such a big subject and probably we'll come back to it over and over again as more people come to be interviewed and I do more reading as I do and listening as I do and try to put it in terms of my understanding of Catholicism, recognizing again that I am not a theologian, but that how the ordinary Catholic and also perhaps those who are curious about the Catholic Church think about this grave and lovely and beautiful subject. During the time of the coronavirus, which still continues, but at that point where all the churches were closed and you couldn't even do an outside service, a lot of people, both in the secular society and among other faiths, could not understand why Catholics in particular were so hot and bothered by the closing of their parishes. The conventional wisdom was that it was just as good to watch the Mass on the computer or television. It was better than nothing, to be sure, but it simply was not as good. Why? All of the sacraments, baptism, confirmation, confession, the Mass, the Eucharist, holy orders, marriage, funerals, they are in person visible signs of God's presence on the earth. They are not things that can be achieved in their fullness remotely. The Eucharist, the word means thanksgiving, but it is so much more than that for a Catholic and for some of the Protestant faithful. I have never claimed to be a theologian, something I will repeat as I did in the beginning as these podcasts go along. So in terms of getting more particular theological information on the nature of the Eucharist, 
of what we also call Holy Communion. There are so many good sources. Here are a couple, some I've read, others I've not. Here is one that I have read and not long ago. It is Eucharist by Bishop Robert Barron. It is good because it is fairly easy to read and not a bad introduction to someone who has no prior knowledge of the concept of the Eucharist. Another, which I haven't read, but I have heard the author, himself a convert to Catholicism, and he is very good at explaining the faith which he adopted, Scott Hahn. The Lamb's Supper, the Mass as Heaven on Earth. I mention this one because it is essentially something Candace said about going to Mass, that all of heaven is there for today. I want to talk about how I see it in the context of that theology as I have come to understand it. If anybody detects heresy creeping in here, who is a theologian, feel free to correct me in the comments and I will certainly post those corrections. The celebration of the Mass, the consecration of the Eucharist, is the representation of that which happened once for all time, that is, the sacrifice of Jesus' life on the cross to redeem sinners, past, present, and future, from sin. At the Last Supper, Jesus Christ did more than preside over a meal the night before he was crucified. He gave us himself, his presence, after his death on the cross and his resurrection continue in the transubstantiated host. He is, in effect, walking among us in the Blessed Sacrament. That is why Catholics make a big deal over how the consecrated host is discussed and treated by Catholics and non-Catholics alike. Transubstantiation. It's a big word, and it came later in the development of the theology of the Church. It's a word that means that the bread and the wine, which is presented at the Mass from fragile human hands, creations as we are of God, are transformed, not to the eye, but in reality. They become, truly, to the believer, four things, body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. This is where, if you get along in your reading, Thomas Aquinas is a good source of the explanation as to this action of God through the instrument of the priest at the altar. He didn't always have this name, this transubstantiation until around the time of Aquinas, but early Christians already saw what the reality was, what the Lord had given us. A lot of folks who have become Catholic have traced their conversion to a reading of what we call the Church Fathers. These were the early presbyters, priests effectively of the Church, who wrote after Christ's death and resurrection, but not that long after. Remember that the Bible itself was not written until some years after Christ's death and resurrection. What carried the church to that period was tradition. One of the earliest of these church fathers was Ignatius of Antioch. What we know of him is only from his various letters written to the early church as he was on his way to being martyred for the faith in Rome. I know these things get disputed. That's okay. We all have to look for ourselves and let God's grace take us where he will. Anyway, Ignatius wasn't talking symbolically when he referred to the death and resurrection of Christ, nor about the bread and wine that became his body and blood. 
one of the most famous letters is the one to the church in Smyrna, which is in Asia. And in that letter, he specifically refers, as I already said, to the church. So the church, which is Catholic, is being discussed at around 105, 107 AD, which is not that many years after the death and resurrection of Christ, and around the time that the Bible itself, the New Testament, I mean, is being written, inspired by God. And he talks about the virgin birth, and he refers to those and the consequence to those who refuse to admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins and which, in his goodness, the Father raised. So, not only does Ignatius talk about it, but when you read the Bible, it's said in very literal terms. It's uh, interesting that we don't like to be literal about so much in our debates on religion, but in this, there is no doubt about the literal nature of the body and blood of Christ being given to us for our salvation and for our wait until he comes again. When it comes to believing this rather dramatic reality, it's a time to have the sweet innocence of a child, the unjaded child in thinking about what happens and what is taken into our bodies and souls to the jaded mind of an adult, whatever the faith, or if any faith, it seems just silly. But if Jesus is God, the last thing it is, is silly. It is profoundly serious and present and real. The priest is not a magician. It needs to be very clear. The priest does nothing of himself. He stands in the shoes of Christ and invokes the Holy Spirit the actualizer of the most sacred event. And it is God, the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who makes himself present in the form of the host, but in his very substance before the people. God represents the gift of his sacrifice once for all, 2,000 plus years ago, and bids us to take him into ourselves to continue his accomplished work of salvation. I understand it if you say, I can't see it. There is a lot that you and I can't see that's true, nonetheless. What did Hamlet say, that old cliche of Shakespeare? There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. I don't think that any of us would seriously disagree with that. Candace talked about being distracted at Mass. That's true of anyone who attends any service. But here, when we are distracted, we are missing something truly astonishing. It was to bring the people's attention to that extraordinary moment that in the Tridentine Mass, the Latin Rite, and still in some Novus Ordo celebrations, bells are rung to wake us up and say, here, now, it's happening. He is happening. He is becoming fully present to us in this room, as present as he was at the Last Supper. I know folks, even Catholic folk, get all worked up when you say that in large part what is happening on the altar and that which we consume is part of a mystery. 
We think of ourselves as the captains of our very existence, even though that very existence itself is a mystery, whether you believe in God or not. The Eucharist is sustenance. The Eucharist is the sacrifice God made once for all. It provides grace for us to carry on as his missionaries in the struggle of daily life. There's something so ineffable, indispensable, beyond the cosmic, because remember, God created the cosmos about the Eucharist. Bishop Barron talks in his book, which I do hope you read, uh, about the word eat in John's Gospel, when he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood shall have eternal life. Bishop Barron points out, and other sources do as well, that the word used, the Greek, is trogo, which means to chew or to gnaw. The first time I heard that was in actually watching the video that Bishop Barron did of his book. Candace said something in our recent podcast that you become what you consume. You are consuming what appears to be bread and wine, but is no longer bread and wine in its essence. That essence can't be seen by our five senses, but it can be felt in the most transformative of ways. There is a knowing that transcends our usual experience if there is also belief. And I think sometimes when belief is being sought but not yet found, there are transcendent moments. This gets complicated to explain, and I refer you to the Catholic resources out there, the ones I mentioned, but also ones that you can look up yourself. I tend to prefer Catholic sites because that's the tradition from whence I'm coming. But what you see is that the accident, the appearance of bread and wine after the change, but what's left, what's there, what's the main aspect is the substance, the very self of Christ. Now you would say, well, how can he be present now, let alone in that bread and wine? Well, if there is a God, then he is outside of time, and then is now, and the future is now, and the like. The Eucharist is the heart of things, of our earthly and spiritual life, and yet probably since the middle of the 20th century, we peripatetic faithful have drifted from the recognition of the heart, of Jesus' heart, in the Eucharist. There was a time when receiving the Eucharist was not done routinely, partly because we were all much more aware of our daily failings and dreaded receiving him when we were as yet in an unconfessed state of sin. Receiving God into our bodies and souls was not routine, and we were reminded that he was the center, not our entertainment by the musical offerings and the human camaraderie of the handshake of peace. Non-Catholics, understandably, may not comprehend the awesomeness, meaning humbling, remarkable, the breathtaking reality of God received, but it is devastatingly so when it comes to Catholics. I've been blessed to lecture and to serve as needed at our parish. From my location in the sanctuary, and also having acted from time to time as a Eucharistic minister, I have observed how the faithful receive him because, in part, we have lost the sense of the transcendent on our tongues and in our hands. There are those who, upon taking him into their mouths, literally seem to have a glow, 
visible satisfaction of the hunger of the soul, but mostly. People, well, they schlep up to the altar and take God one-handed, or with what I call claw hand, grabbing it out of the priest's grasp. This sort of response is consistent with the Pew Research that has said that approximately two-thirds of Catholics don't believe in the real presence. How you act when you receive is part and parcel of what you ultimately believe. It's not all of it, obviously, but it's, it's certainly, if you're casual about receiving our Lord, then you begin not to realize that which you are receiving. Although anyone who is not a believing Catholic is welcome to come and learn what it is to be Catholic, all too many, particularly at funerals and baptisms, or even lapsed Catholics, even though asked rather to accept the blessing, receive in this casual way. Why is that a problem? Because if you don't believe in the transubstantiated host, then to receive is, let's just say, kind of an insult, not intended perhaps, but nonetheless one to the faithful who have prepared or should have prepared their intellect, hearts, and souls to worship him in receipt of him, and a thoughtless disregard of the God we believe is there present. Everyone is welcome to become a member of the Catholic faith, always, but as in all things, there is preparation and the act of assent Yes, I know that I am receiving God when I take the changed host. Now, I'm not critiquing anyone any more or less than I'm critiquing myself. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a pew distracted, upset about something, paying no attention to the words of institution, and then taking him into my hand and onto my tongue with nary a thought. Or even worse, kind of in the mood I was in today, angry about something unrelated to him. How often have I seriously considered whether I should receive at all that day? Was I angry? Was I resentful about something or someone? Had I committed an as yet unconfessed mortal sin which I had been rationalizing as modern life allows me to do? I too have been somewhat brainwashed, allowed myself to become brainwashed, so that I might say, well, that isn't a sin anymore, right? Like all selfish human beings, I tend to think that God is there only for my needs and not me there to offer him glory with all my heart. And what level of purity the absolution of the confessional can provide once I have resolved not to sin any longer. I mean, really resolve. To confess without the intent to reform is meaningless. That I may not, in fact, reform is the reason that the confessional remains there. For one day, I will intend to reform, and this time, accept the grace that allows it to be so. I said that all of us who have attended Mass are often distracted and not focused on what is happening every single time in the representation of the sacrifice. Right before the moment of consecration, there is a prayer. Actually, there are four versions of this prayer that tell the story of what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, did in rescuing humanity and giving us the chance to cooperate with God so that we may be with him for eternity after we too go through the door of death. I'm going to read part of it, not the part where 
the actual spirit comes down, obviously. Uh, that's for the priest. But the early part and maybe towards the latter part so that you can hear what, oddly enough, I've only recently heard myself so that I recognize the tremendous work of God. Father, we acknowledge your greatness. All your actions show your wisdom and love. You formed man in your own likeness and set him over the whole world to serve you, his creator, and to rule over all creatures. Even when he disobeyed you and lost your friendship, you did not abandon him to the power of death, but helped all men to seek and find you. Again and again you offered a covenant to man, and through the prophets taught him to hope for salvation. Father, you so loved the world that in the fullness of time you sent your only Son to be our Savior. He was conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, a man like us in all things but sin. To the poor he proclaimed the good news of salvation, to prisoners freedom, and to those in sorrow joy. In fulfillment of your will he gave himself up to death, and by rising from the dead he destroyed death and restored life and that we might live no longer for ourselves but for him. He sent the Holy Spirit from you, Father, as his first gift to those who believe to complete his work on earth and bring us to the fullness of grace. So at that point, the words of consecration occur, the priest standing in the shoes of Christ and invoking the Holy Spirit who actualizes it. And then after he does that, the priest continues, Father, we now celebrate this memorial of our redemption. We recall Christ's death, his descent among the dead, his resurrection and his ascension to your right hand, and looking forward to his coming in glory, we offer you his body and blood, the acceptable sacrifice which brings salvation to the whole world. Lord, look upon the sacrifice which you have given to your church, and by your Holy Spirit gather all who share this one bread and one cup into the one body of Christ, a living sacrifice of praise. All of the prayers, this prayer, the other Eucharistic prayers, the creed, all of these things are to prepare us, the faithful, to receive our Lord into our body and into our hearts. What gets in the way? A million things, I guess. But among them, it seems that trait, which accompanies our free will, gets in the way. Our concupiscence, our need to be number one, not to be the creatures that we are, but to be co-equal with God on our terms. Our minds can't grasp it. We can't grasp God. Thus, he must not be. He tells us to be like little children. Children abandon themselves to the parents whose physical interaction created them, a shadow of their own creation by God. They inherently recognize their vulnerability and look to their parents to protect them, to lead them, to teach them. Not all creatures do that well, but God does protect us well. And part of that protection is this gift he gives us weekly, if not daily, that allows us to endure the struggle. This is such a big subject. 
I do recommend that you read the commentaries by going on the various Catholic sites. Ultimately, to believe or not is an act of will supported by the endless grace he offers to every one of us, Catholics and non-Catholics. I suspect we'll be coming back to this subject many times in discussions with our interviewees and in terms of things that pop up in the news or in history or in some religious program that I run across that interests me and I want to share with you. And I will always try to give credit to whatever source that I have found that interests me. And always, I said this now twice before, but always with a recognition that I'm just ordinary and I'm trying in my ordinary way to integrate my faith and to share that struggle, sometimes that joy, with you. And also to share my successes and my failures so that together we don't become discouraged and on the opposite side to encourage one another. I hope this episode gave you a little bit to think about and has encouraged you to look into the Eucharist more deeply and I look forward to our next program on Ordinary Old Catholic Me.